it was shown that using graft material, something to augment the repair, made the repair stronger so that the recurrence rate, instead of being, say, 25%, dropped down to 5%. It was unethical, totally inappropriate, that there was a profiteering scam that was going on that's surrounding this. And so it added fuel to the fire. It, it didn't make the whole situation any better. There was a lot of money paid out. There was a lot of settlement going on because it would cost more to fight something than, than to do that. In the world of robotic medicine, controversy is nothing new. I'm Tom Glander, and today I'm talking with Dr. Mark Winter and Dr. Rich about the four-letter word mesh and its use in robotic surgery. Tell us a little bit about what mesh is exactly used for and why you would need it. Well, well, Tom, I, I, don't, I don't know if you did this, you just used a four-letter word, mesh. I, yeah, <laughs> I did. <laughs> it's hated and is loved. Yeah. Um, so uh, th this is, it goes back a long, a long time. Um, when you look at things that we do in the world of pelvic reconstruction, where, where over time from a lot of times childbirth, from aging, there's a, definitely a genetic component. Sometimes we'll see this earlier in life. Sometimes women in their thirties, a lot of times later in life. That, that connective tissue gives out and things fall down. So what, what we come and call bladder falling or cystocele or the, the, the rectum falling or rectocele or the uterus falling, uterine prolapse, these are all things that we deal with. And o o over the years, um, as, as gynecologic surgeons, people thought, okay, how can we treat this condition? And, and it was treated by trying to find things in the body to attach things to. In other words, if the vagina was falling down because it lost its connective tissue, we needed to find other ligaments or something to connect it to. And we learned from other parts of medicine, for instance, from hernias, which is a break in connective tissue. And then a lot of times uh, a hernia has... Um, commonly bowel, for instance, coming, coming through the groin area is a common area to see that. And in treating those groin hernias, it was shown that using graft material, something to augment the repair, made the repair stronger so that the recurrence rate, instead of being, say, 25%, dropped down to 5%. Mm -hmm. So in gynecologic surgery, We've said, ah, oh, that's a really good idea. Maybe we should start using graft materials. So at first we were using what we would call biologic materials made from um, e either an animal or uh, cadaveric from a cadaver. We, we, would, we would get material. Um, a lot of times we use things from either uh, pig skin or cow skin. Um, there are several other products that have been, been used as well. And that appeared to be better than for some things than using just, just your own tissue. And, and that evolved to, well, wait a minute. This still isn't as good as we'd like it to be. Maybe if we use the mesh, which is a, a synthetic uh, plastic material, 
um, that that we would have better outcomes. And and that that kind of got the ball started um, and evolved to using different types of mesh. And, and um, that's why we use it to, to answer your question. Okay, so that gives so a little. Because we had high failure rates. We weren't happy with it. If you follow patients over a long period of time, you would see this. A lot of surgeons didn't real, realize this, even because when people fail, they weren't necessarily going back to the surgeon that did it. They would go to other people to mm. fix it. Okay, so those failure rates then. Um... Did that bring up other problems uh, in in the in society's mind, in other doctors' minds? What about you, Doctor Rich? What's your take? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we're always striving to get the best possible outcome for our patient. Um, you know, we we abhor the concept of failure. You know, we don't like that. We take pride in our work. We want to be able to do a surgery and have it last um, for a long time. And the reality is, as Mark said, you know, that the tissue um, not only becomes weak in the pelvis, um, it can, I mean, it becomes completely, you could say unusable as a component of of a reconstructed surgery. And the pelvic tissue is unique in that, you know, the pelvic floor has to distend to at least, you know, 10 centimeters, at least the, you know, the pelvic outlet to allow the delivery of a baby. And then it has to magically go back to its normal proportions and the relative component of elastin and collagen and other factors that make up the tissue allow for this, these unique properties. But over time, enough damage can occur that, um, the tissues actually start to fall and, you know, without getting into too much detail, there's, you know, there's three levels of support. There's the level at the top, which is called apical support. And then there's the level two, um, which is the, you know, arcus fascia pelvis. And then there's the pubocervical fascia, uh, and the, uh, hymen, which is the, uh, third level of support. And, when we talk about reconstruction, we're, we're largely talking about that first level, level, apical support, um, which is, as Mark said, where we're trying to look for a strong ligament to stitch um, that apex or the top of the vagina into, to, to give it uh, long-lasting support. And essentially, we have our choice of about three ligaments, the uterocentral ligaments, the Sacrospinous uh, ligaments for the anterior longitudinal longitudinal ligament of the sacrum. So they're just three strong connective tissue layers in the pelvis. And for 60 years, we've been using an abdominal approach to take mesh to suture the top of the vagina into this ligament that lies on top of the sacrum. So this isn't a new concept. I mean, this has been around for a very long time. And when the mesh is placed abdominally, like through an abdominal scission or through um, a port, I think that that's a very different placement and it has a very different effect on the tissue than when we um, actually go from below, when we go vaginally and we actually have to 
make an incision on the vaginal tissue, the vaginal epithelium, and then put this foreign body and then close the tissue back over the foreign body. And that can be done very effectively. The problem is the technique has to be precise. Um, and even in the best of hands, there was one study, the randomized control trial for anterior repair called the Altman trial, uh, named after the, the surgeon, the primary surgeon. And they had an 11% risk of reoperation um, to do a vaginal anterior repair with mesh, um, 11% for bleeding, infection, erosion, and pain. Mm. And they did have better outcomes. So, so both subject and objective. So the patients and... Uh, the doctors, so the patients felt and the doctors saw that the results were better, but at the risk of a much higher complication. And so this kind of snowballed and as more research came out, we found, yes, there are good results, but um, we are causing more problems. We are actually causing more complications. Um, and it's, you know, it's a balance. So some people would rather take that risk. They'd rather take the risk of, you know, maybe having to get a reoperation for an erosion. Uh, they would take that risk to not have this, to live with a, a bulge or a prolapse uh, or pain or whatever symptom they may be feeling from that prolapse. Now, you know, the whole thing gets convoluted because, as Mark said, it's become a four-letter word. So you can't even say it anymore without people kind of overreacting because when there have been co bad complications in certain cases, they've been very bad complications that um, in no, there's probably not any other way to say it have really, you know, ruined some patients' lives as far as, you know, uh, chronic pain, sexual pain and stuff like that. Now those complications are very rare and, you know, some of those patients may, have been having chronic pain and sexual pain even before the repair. But the problem is everybody started to throw quote unquote mesh into the same category. When we know that this abdominal mesh that we talked about at the beginning, the sacrococcal pexy mesh is not associated with any high risk of complications or reoperations. It's a temp uh, technically challenging surgery, um, which we'll talk about, you know, in a minute, but it doesn't have this high reoperation rate and incontinent slings, which, you know, have been around for 25 years and are easily the gold standard in as much as they have, they're the fastest, um, the easiest, the highest success rate, um, and really have no higher risk of complications than any other anti-incontinence surgery. And ultimately, um, the products were withdrawn. They were not recalled, but they were withdrawn from the market, these vaginal mesh prolapse materials. But what we have to realize is there are other very effective uses of mesh, critically effective uses of mesh for society, including incontinence, including abdominal uh, prolapse repairs, and even hernia repairs. And the only other thing I would say is the way I describe it to, to a patient 
So what we're talking about is material. It's a uh, macroforest monofilament type amic classification type one material that um, what all of that means is there are pores that are big enough that the body's uh, defense mechanism, these little things called macrophages, could go in between these little interstices within the mesh to fight off infection if there happened to be an infection. And when we use this type of mesh, this polypropylene, as we have almost exclusively for the last 20-some years, we really don't see an increased risk in the rate of infections. And I described to the patient, I described the mesh, if you just have one permanent suture, okay, like let's say that you were going to close a hernia with one permanent suture. No one would freak out about that. You're just going to put a permanent suture. And permanent sutures the other way, same material, polypropylene. That's all it is. So it's just a lattice. Um, and we've learned things about mesh load, like the actual amounts and different things like that that can affect the risk of reoperation. But ultimately, after, you know, there's a 2008 FDA white paper, 2011 FDA white paper, there was a device panel hearing, and there were a number of other um, conclusions issued by the FDA, which ultimately led to um, the stop sales and manufacture order for vaginal mesh. But every single step of the way they specifically exonerated incontinence slings and abdominal prolapse mesh. So those have always been safe. They're safe to use now. Um, I tell patients it's the exact same thing that was in the vaginal mesh, but just the way that we do it and the mesh burden, the amounts are low enough and safe enough that they don't have this elevated risk of complications and even if they did, it's a small enough amount of mesh that it can be completely removed in the extremely unlikely event that that was necessary. So, Dr. Winter, your uh, experience then is the same as Dr. Rich's experience in this regard? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely the same. It, it's, here's where the robot comes in. Yeah. So we had this really good abdominal procedure, but the problem was, it's a big procedure, big incision. You're operating in an area close to um, some vital blood vessels. This this area, um, what what Rick talked about, where where the anterior longitudinal ligament lies over the sacral promontory, so bottom of the spine, kind of top of the pelvis, that area. You open that area up, and there there's major blood vessels in that area, and sometimes there's there's extra vessels and veins and things we need to be careful of. But one of the advantages of the robot is the great vision that you have, how you can get up close, you can see what's there. And, and so I, I know for me, I, w I was kind of in my, uh, say, advanced learning curve of the robot at the time there was this, the, the controversy of mesh was 2008 to 2011. And in that 2011 warning, they talked about, actually, the FDA used a number of a 17% chance of having a conflict of erosion or, or the mesh coming through. 
And I remember at that time saying, okay, uh, I, I was, I was using some of those vag vaginal meshes at the time and saying, you know what, I think there's a better way to do this. I think doing this robotically. And so I began, um, actually for the better, my practice changed to, for these larger defects, these, um, apical defects of, of uterine prolapse or the top of the vaginal vault, the, the more, more serious prolapses of performing sacral copopexies. And it, it, it's been life-changing for my patient. It's life-changing for me to, to be able to do this in, in a, a procedure where they, they can go home same day or the next day. Um, and only have the small incisions and a very rapid recovery, but still have the benefits of, of having mesh used in that way. Um, plus it's, it, it, it's the one procedure. A lot of other things we did, we were tying vagina to ligaments and it wasn't exactly in the right position, but it was good enough here. We're restoring our, our anatomy and, and allowing full function vaginally afterwards. So I, I, I think that was just a, a really big thing that was positive. And, and the hard part was that was getting lost where you had this controversy about mesh. You had a lot of litigation going on around mesh. You had um, the biggest producer of vaginal mesh taking their product off the market because they were being barraged with so many lawsuits they had no choice but to do that. So, so it was, it, it was an interesting time to, to really have to sit down and explain to people, here's what mesh does. Here's, uh, as Rick said, it's been used for 25 years. We know the complication rates very small. And typically if there's a complication, it's minor. And here, here's something we, we can do. So like I said, I'm, I've, it's been very positive um, since that time and, and with a low, very low failure rate compared to other procedures, uh, and especially to the way it was done before without using mesh. Did those lawsuits go anywhere? Um, uh, I mean, either, either. yeah, it, 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 honestly, it depended on, on how there was a lot of money paid out. There was a lot of settlement going on because it would cost more to fight something than, than to do that. And, um, in, in cases. So, um, it, it, it costs companies a lot of money. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say the biggest player in the market at the time, American medical systems, it, it turned the industry on its head. They had to uh, declare bankruptcy and, yes. um, they spun off their company into a separate company, but even that only lasted a year. Um, and I mean, I don't want to discount in any way. There are patients that suffered mightily because of either, um, I don't know how to, I don't know how else to put this, but because the procedure was done experimentally on them. And, and what I mean when I say that it's not that we don't have the data for the procedural volume as a specialty, but some people kind of got in, unless you people, doctors got into it for the wrong reasons, maybe for financial reasons, and they didn't necessarily have the experience that was required to do these types of surgeries. And that's not the only reason. I mean, sometimes you just have a bad outcome, even in the most 
expert of expert hands. So I definitely don't want to discount that there are patients who really had horrible complications. I will say that those really bad complications were extremely rare. Um, most of the complications were, were minor things. And I think when people, you know, see an opportunity, you know, they either through their own decision, get involved. Um, you know, unfortunately there was some trial baiting by these attorneys that went out and somehow got lists of patients who had this and kind of scared the patients. It was and it was unethical, totally inappropriate, but there was a profiteering scam that was going on that's surrounding this. And so it added fuel to the fire. It, it didn't make the whole situation any better. Um, I think the worst is behind us now. Um, and I, th- and I, I, I will repeat, um, I, I think that in an expert's hands, you can get very good outcomes with vaginal mesh. Um, but, we, we do have to balance that because we know that there is a higher overall risk. And, and Mark said it beautifully, but I think it does bear repeating that the value of the robot here was that we took a surgery, which, you know, is ending up being kind of the hero in all of this, the sacrocolpopexy, the abdominal prolapse suspension procedure that had to be done through a, a C-section or, you know, or even a vertical incision and patients were in, in the hospital for three days. So there are, there are, you know, um, a handful of super expert surgeons that were doing this with what we call straight stick or laparoscopic. Um, but the robot really gave us the ability to convert this procedure from a, you know, three day in the hospital, eight week recovery type of picture to going home the same day and back to most normal activities within 10 days. So it was kind of like, I guess, the robot allowed for the renaissance of this proven surgery to be able to come full circle. And, um, you know, as with Mark, you know, I was doing some of these laparoscopically, but, uh, and I was doing some of the vaginal work. But with the robot coming into more and more prominence at the time when this mesh debate was going on, um, it seemed like the perfect fit. And it's really um, transformed my practice so much, so much so that, I mean, that, that's almost primarily what I do now um, is these types of prolapse surgeries. And, and as we said earlier, we were talking about um, you know, it's not for, it's not for everybody. It's a very delicate surgery. There's, as Mark said, you know, you got your, uh, common iliac vessels, you got a ureter, you've got, um, you know, nerve structures there. Uh, you have to be careful when you're doing this dissection or it can be catastrophic. And, you know, the simple solution, you know, the, the society that makes these recommendations said, look, you got to do. 10 of these in a proctored fashion, you got to do half of your practice pelvic reconstruction and you got to do at least five a year, which is, I think Mark would agree a pretty low bar. If you can't do at least that much, um, you can't commit that type of case volume. Um, what we don't want, what we don't want to see as professionals is we don't want to see bad outcomes that then become related to this procedure when it's really unnecessary. 
Uh, and anybody's willing to commit the time, and I say anybody, any surgeon that's willing to commit the time and dedication to doing this um, really is going to be a blessing for their patients because they're going to be able to get um, really high, long, durable, lasting uh, results with, with this repair. Um, there, there's, you know, uh, a number of studies, but the success rate hovers around 90 to 94%. And with some of our traditional anterior repairs, vaginally without mesh, we were looking at 30 to 50%. So, I mean, it, it's a different universe when it comes to success rate with this type of repair. Oh, that's, yeah, there's hardly, there's no comparison. Especially with the more severe prolapses, to, to be able to still offer a 90 plus percent success rate where before we knew it was a flip of a coin, whether it was going to hold up or not. And, and it's, like I said, it's, it's been uh, really life-changing um, in that sense. The whole, uh, just to go back a little bit, what, what Rick was saying about vaginal mesh, you know, so, sometimes mesh gets lumped into, to everything gets put together. I mean, there were, there were things going on, like you said, it, it took some expertise to be able to place the mesh in the right place vaginally when we were when we were doing some of these vaginal repairs. But, but remember, mesh is still a foreign body, and your body wants to get rid of it. So there were times where you know, we, we with the bigger than we learned with the bigger than incision, the more a chance of erosion or it coming through. We also saw all meshes are not created equal, and as Rick was pointing out the properties, some of the, some of the meshes had advantages and the ones that didn't um, actually were going off. It was kind of self-selection. We're going off the market anyways, but it, it just complicates how, how we thought about it. And, and you know, to the, uh, the few people where we did see some really bad complications, again, that gave everybody pause and, and everybody said, okay, what can we do to make, make this better. And I think uh, now looking back, uh, what, nine years ago, I think we've advanced quite a bit since that time. Well, we, we have to talk about two, two different things. So we have to talk about incontinence swings, which is going to be the least amount of mesh of any type of mesh repair. And that actually ends up only being about a quarter of an inch wide and about two to three inches long. So that's a tiny pistol. Uh, okay. Very small, very small. And that's all it takes to do the job. Yeah. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you really don't get those, you know, erosions, infections, uh, pain, sexual pain. You don't really get those complications uh, very rarely. And if you do, it is such a small mesh burden that, that it, is relatively easy to even completely excise and completely reverse. Now, um, I would say, I mean, in my practice, that's about a one in a thousand to one in eighteen hundred proposition. So it's very rare. And you know, if you look at any surgery, the risk of some type of major problem is going to be in that ballpark. So it's not unique to incontinence repairs. And it's not unique to swings. There are just with any any surgery, there's going to be you know, some type of really rare, weird thing that can happen um, that's going to require, you know, some additional significant, you know, repair or, or surgery. When we're talking about the sacrocopalpexy, you know, we're talking about uh, overall more uh, mesh because we're not just um, restoring the 
mobility of the urethra here, we're actually having to um, lay a piece of mesh to kind of replace the patient's connective tissue, not just at the top of the vagina, but also the front, the front, the front of the vagina between the bladder and the back of the vagina between the rectum. So in that case, you're looking about, you know, seven inches by probably about three quarters of an inch um, with, you know, about three, three inches going on either side, front and back. So it's, it's more, but as we've mentioned a couple of times, because you're placing it through the abdomen and you're dissecting the bladder off the vagina, um, and we're not actually incising into the mucosa or the, you know, the inside of the vagina, um, we really just don't see much in the way of erosion. Like in the literature, um, about 2 to 3%. Uh, there was a 10-year follow-up to the fair trial, which is one of the bigger studies, that showed a 10% erosion at, at um, between 7 to 10 years. But we have to interpret that information carefully because those, that study was done with 42 gram per meter squared heavy, heavy weight mesh, whereas the standard now is less than half of that, 18 to 20 gram per meter squared. So, you know, technology gets better. Everything gets better. So as we've learned through the process, um, I think we can't help but get better and better technology tools and better outcomes. Dr. Winter, we talked in one of our earlier times about the future of robotics. And when you just keep extrapolating better, 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 pretty soon you're sliding people in a tube and 10 minutes later they come out and they're done. Uh, it's a little, <laughs> that's a little bit uh, over the top, but. You know, I mean, it's I, funny. It's funny you say that. There's a, you know, you'll see videos online where people are like, a 20 minute sacrocopal pepsi. And, you know, this is when it's done well. This is a two-hour surgery, and it, you know we can't help but laugh at that. But you know you're saying that now, and that may be the truth. You may just in five years from now push the suture button, and in five seconds it may just the robot may put the stitches in for us. So you know it's a it's a brave new world. You know things the technology keeps advancing. So what's hilarious now may actually end up being standard of care five years from now. Dr. Winter, you were a video gamer, and I don't know about you, Dr. Rich. Did you play a lot of video games when you were younger? <laughs> it served me well. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so suturing inside with the uh, robotic arms is probably like the fun part of the job, I would think. <laughs> it, it, it just makes it almost effortless in, in the sense you're able to ergonomically move the instruments around just like you were there with your hands. And, and so that, like I said, the suturing aspect of robotics was a total game changer and especially uh, procedure such as uh, a sacrocopopexy where there's a lot of suturing involved. It has really decreased the time. And like I said, for myself, made it much more feasible to be able to do something in a couple hours as opposed to laparoscopically where it would have taken twice that long, if not longer. Do you do that? I, I've seen the general surgeons do this thing where they take the, the, the needles and they will, when they, before they put the mesh in and they take a couple of needles or whatever and they, they slide them into the tissue and they're just kind of there and then they go and do something. Then they go and grab those and pull them out and they use them to secure the mesh. Is that something you do or is that not? There, there's a surgeon on the East Coast that's a little famous for that with sacrocopopexy. 
Um, it's one way to do that. He get, he gets the sutures there and, and kind of put, puts them in a place. I prefer to have one needle in at a time and we've become, my assistants have become so efficient. It really doesn't, it, 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 it's, they know it's like ready for me when I'm ready to use it. So oh, okay. it really doesn't, doesn't take any time to get the needle in. And like I said, that's just my personal preference. And what about you, Dr. Rich? Well, yeah, I think that we have a lot of um, heightened awareness around the concept of retained surgical instrument, uh, which could be a needle. And that's just one of those never events. That's right. one of those things that you just can't have. You just can't have that happen. So for the most part, I do try to, you know, one in, one out, count on the board. We, you know, and of course you can do final needle count and everything like that. I just find when, um, not, not that we don't do it. I mean, sometimes we do park a needle, uh, you know, in the peritoneum yeah. and come back to it. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Culligan, uh, actually Mark and I are featured speakers at this weekend's, uh, uh, the largest robotic conference in the world. Uh, that, uh, and I'm, I'm actually speaking with the guy that, that Mark's talking about, Dr. Culligan, invented something called a stitch fix. I think that's what it's called. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. But, um, you know, it's just um, a, a repository that you, you introduce into the admin and it's a capsule. You take the needles out and then you stitch and then you drop it in. That, that way, you only have to put this one little um, needle counting device in. Um, pretty clever idea. I, I mean, I haven't, now that we're all using what's called fourth generation robotics or the XI, we don't have a need for a big port, which is how you have to introduce something like that. Uh, we, we get away with just eight millimeter ports. So, um, I just prefer to take them one at a time, bring them in, take them out. Yeah. And I think, um, there's enough evidence now that conclusively demonstrates, including Mark and my, our own publication that you open, you convert, you convert less. So what I'm, what I mean by that is if you start out laparoscopically and then someone else starts out robotically over enough time, the guy who's doing it laparoscopically will end up having to, you know, get out a scalpel and make an incision and they're going to have to do that more often. And that that's in gynecologic surgery, you know, there's level one evidence that shows that now. So we know that if our goal is to start with little incision and end with little incision, robotics is the way to go. Yeah. And, and I, I know we've talked about this before, but, but we, uh, we were co-authors on a paper published in 2016 that showed for hysterectomy. So there was the lowest complication when we compared our, our group of seven surgeons, 2,300 robotic hysterectomies versus other ways of doing it, regular laparoscopy, vaginal or open abdominal the lowest, the statistically, the lowest complication rate was in the robotic group. So we showed, at least, at least in our hands, we were having better results. A again, we have people returning to work faster, less times having to convert or op open up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th I think better again is the the word. Where are we going from here? I know it's well, going to get better. You know, and again, yeah, I mean, I think that right now. Um, 
we you know, I'm not sure if that's a four-letter word, yeah. but we, we do have to understand that what a patient may have in their mind as a four-letter word only relates to the use of mesh in one particular way, and um, when it's used in these other ways, slings, uh, hernia repairs, cerebrocorbopexy, we do not notice any of those increased risk of complications, and that was uh, definitely noted by the FDA through all of their white papers. And I mean, I, I you know, you try to use analogies that, you know, I tell my patient, you know, you may have a poodle and you may have a pit bull, right? And the pit bull, they're both dogs, right? The pit bull may be a little bit more dangerous, you know, and, and it's just, it's, you know, a different breed. It's a different indication for use. So you don't want to, and I apologize to any pit bull owners out there that might love their dog, but the point is um, mesh is not mesh is not mesh. So depending on the indica indication, um, it can be done very effectively, very safely, but you do need to have that informed consent process with your doctor. And who knows, we may be able to develop, I mean, you know, Science and technology are always getting better. We may be able to develop some type of biologic in years to come that gives the same. Right now, the level one evidence shows that mesh is superior to biologic, specifically for sacrococcal But, you know, maybe technology will continue to improve and we'll be able to replace this one day. But this is the gold standard right now. And Dr. Winter. Yeah. I, I would I would just add, you know, we've we've actually seen a lot of progress when you, when you look over the last 15 years from what was available and what's available now, and I I think for for the here and now, you know, I would just encourage people if if you have problems like this, make sure you're seeing somebody that truly has the experience. Um, is a urogynecologist or truly has the experience to, to handle these things. Cause again, it's not something to dabble in. It's something you, you need, you need to be doing all the time because, because it is complicated and it's something that the average gynecologic surgeon is not equipped nor do, do they want to, um, be, be doing a lot of these. And, and that, um, as it turns out, mesh is really a good four letter word. A lot of times, it truly is the best option for 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 people, and um, not something necessarily to shy away from.